Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today we are joined by Mrs. Shelley Simpson, Executive Vice President of J.B. Hunt Transport and Chief Commercial Officer and President of Highway Services at J.B. Hunt. Her top five values are authenticity, integrity, work ethic, leading by example, and passion. Thank you, Shelley, for taking time to meet with us about leadership. We deeply appreciate it. And I know, you know, being president of two of the divisions of J.B. Hunt, two segments of J.B. Hunt, I learned that from Kirk. I bet you did learn that from Kirk because you just said a naughty word. That's like cussing in Sunday school. I did. Mm -hmm. I did. Kirk uh, has trained me not to do that. Um, They say segment instead of division. And, okay. And they, they mean no division it. in the company. No division. Oh, well, that's actually an interesting way to differentiate and promote like stronger word usage. Yeah. 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 I like it. I think it really goes along with um, you know we asked you about your top five mm-hmm. leadership values, and I think that goes along with the one of of integrity. Um, but uh, but at any rate, and then of course being chief commercial officer, I know you have been involved in starting and turning around segments of J.B. Hunt. And I know that's really challenging, especially, you know, when you turned around the segment of the truckload segment. What year was that that you really started working on that? Uh, Well, I mean, I never turned around anything on my own. You know, in a, in a turnaround story, there's so many people involved, um, and namely the employees that are directly impacted. So I got the opportunity early in my career. In 2000, we split truck from intermodal, and that became our trucking business segment. And I was asked uh, to come and lead and be you know, kind of the controller of the truckload team, and I really got to be an understudy of our CEO at the time, and now uh, our president of Intermodal. And so it was really uh, those two, along with Craig Harper, and really trying to figure out what were the things that we needed to do to put a turnaround plan together, and then how do we get our people engaged and really move forward on that idea. Well, you know, um, another of your top five leadership um, values is lead by example. And I know you are always, every time I've talked to you about your accomplishments, you always turn it to other people. And I know other people were involved for sure, um, but I think that uh, that really, you, you lead by example. There's, there's no question about it. Thank you. How did you learn that? Um, you know, I am a strong believer in mentors, and I never really told anybody who my mentor was or like, would you be a mentor? I never did that in my entire career. But, you know, I think when you first start in business or in a job, your early mentors are typically your parents or teachers or someone that you trust and you admire qualities about them and, and you know that they have your best interests. As you get into an organization, 
there are other people that naturally become your mentors because you admire or you want to do something that they do. And early in my career, I got a great opportunity to see what I would call servant leadership. They really did, uh, you know, roll up their sleeves and work so closely with, you know, those of us that were right there on the front line. And at the time, I, I didn't actually realize that um, executives didn't do that because I grew up in that environment. I didn't know that that was not a, that wasn't uh, taught or trained inside an organization. I've only had three jobs my whole life. You know, I had one in high school, one in college, and one out of college. That's all I've done. And so I really didn't know that that wasn't the way business happened. But I saw that modeled very young in my career and had the pleasure of working with a lot of different leaders that have always given success. You know, I remember you telling me a story once about when you were working on pricing. And I know it was you and Kirk and... And Terry. Yes. And um, I know you learned a lot about the business as a whole, really logistics as a whole, that process. Would you mind talking about that? Sure. Kirk had asked me if I would be the keeper of the checkbook. And I really didn't even know what that meant. But what I loved, and here's servant leadership, he said, you know what, what you don't know, I'll teach you. And I thought, well, that gave me confidence right away that he recognized I wouldn't know everything. And that made me want to work really, really hard, that I would learn so much so fast. Uh, But through that process, you know, when we started doing pricing, it was such a turnaround story for our organization. And Kirk had figured that out very early on, that pricing was a key to that, that every shipment did not have to be our favorite shipment. That shipments, we, we could... Be indifferent about a shipment based on price, but we didn't have to be market competitive on every single shipment because our economics wouldn't necessarily line up with us making money on every single shipment. And so I started learning what made sense for our organization mathematically from a strategy, from a network perspective. And that was fascinating to me because I love numbers and uh, I love to put together uh, you know, a puzzle and, and figure things out. And so that was really easy for me to, to be tutored, you know, in that scenario. But you talk about servant leadership. There was Terry Matthews, who was our senior vice president at the time of marketing. Kirk Thompson was our president and CEO. And I think at the time I was a director and we were huddled up in a conference room for, seems like every day for probably 18 months. And we would literally come in with long sheets of paper and we would talk on every lane about the price of the lane and what the strategy was behind that and why that would make sense or would not make sense. And every customer bid that came through, we did it. And we brought pricing teams and salespeople in to start helping them understand why would we change from pricing everything as if we loved it all to understanding that we can't haul everything at a market relevant price because our cost wasn't relevant. And that changed the way we viewed our business. And we said quality revenue was the most important component. If we could figure that out inside our organization, that would really make us stable and that would make growth for the future for all of us as employees. And that was that was such a great early lesson that I learned. At the time, you know, I knew it was a great opportunity 
But I look back on that and it shaped so much of my leadership. It wasn't just uh, learning about pricing and strategy. Because we spent so much time together, I learned a lot about um, individually, things that I admired uh, that I wanted to replicate in my personal life or professional life. I always love to hear you talk about this and I always wanted to record it and I'm glad I have because all of our students in the Walton College have to take a course called microeconomics. The other title for that course is price theory. Oh. And, you know, when I hear you describing it, you're really comparing marginal cost and, and, and marginal benefit. And you're, you're talking about how important pricing is to success. And it's, of course, true in everything. But so many companies don't take the time to really think through it. And so when you all were going through this over and over, you were developing rigorous logic around how to figure out, yeah, what is our cost structure and what should the price be? And if it doesn't work, then we're not going to do it. And, and of course, economic theory says that when you do what you're talking about, you will allocate resources to their highest return. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the reasons why J.B. Hunt's so successful. But what's also neat about it is not only were you doing that from a really technical perspective, but there's that servant leadership piece in there too and the and really mentoring um, that was in there so how do you keep that going um, you know I mean another another uh, one of your leadership values is work ethic and hustle that takes hard work to really go through and think through all of that over and over how do you maintain that in the culture it does take hard work, and uh, I actually, when I was standing downstairs and um, saying Happy Thanksgiving to a new employee, and he had been with us for two weeks, he had experience, and had interviewed at another company. He said, "You know, I," uh, he said, "It was just so big here, and that really this surprised me, but it reminded me of another company I went and interviewed. But there was one difference: you guys were really working here. You were working really hard." And I said, oh, let me introduce you to us because we love our strong work ethic. We believe in a strong work ethic as an organization. And that's not to say that work is number one in your life. It's that we want to work really, really hard so that we can gain uh, a lot of benefits and we start growing as an organization because that will be personal benefits for our people. You know, that doesn't just give the company good success. It gives our people good success. And, uh, you know, there's a quote downstairs when you walk through our hallway from Mr. Hunt. It says, good partners attract good partners. I love that quote because that can relate to people you do business with, but that also can relate to employees. And so to be a good partner as an employee here, we have to pull our weight because not one individual can do that because we do believe in a team environment inside our organization. And so I want to be a good partner. So I want to work hard and I want to work hard because you're working hard, Matt. And we just foster that inside our organization that work ethic is a good thing. And again, it doesn't mean that that's number one in your life. It just means, look, we're here and we're here to do a great job. We're here to have fun. We work hard at having fun, too. So we work hard at the work we have to do, but we work hard at making sure that we enjoy being inside our organization. I think that's different. One thing that comes to my mind that's so cool about this is you're working hard to allocate resources optimally for J.B. Hunt which in turn makes society better off. And this is a real clear example because if you're looking at a lane and your cost structure is too high and you therefore bypass that and, 
and, and, and put it towards another, put your capacity towards another lane. Another company whose cost structure is better suited for that lane will price it lower, and they get that. And so society's better off. The, the comp- your competitor's making more money, you're making more money, and customers are getting better prices. And so eventually, consumers are getting better prices. So your hard work is making everyone else better off. So, Matt, that would be true before we started our non-asset part of our business. So what really created, when, when I talked about that earlier, that we could be indifferent about a shipment if we had the price right based on our cost, that started to change as we introduced integrated capacity solutions because we started recognizing, wait a minute, we want to be modal indifferent. We want to be completely agnostic as to how we move the shipment. We want to optimize the shipment for the best way it should move in service pricing capacity. And so no longer would our competitors get that because we would solve for that on the front end. And instead of trying to talk a customer into giving us a shipment on a price that was too high, we would then say our actual answer should be a carrier, a contract carrier that we do business with in that lane. And so we'll put our assets with what makes sense for our assets and we'll put other people's assets, what makes sense, that solves better for our customers and win for everyone. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, when you first started getting into integrated capacity solutions, I remember thinking, gosh, that's going to be challenging because the truck business <laughs> is going to feel like you're competing with them. And I remember hearing you say that it was true. Um, but that must have been a challenging time. It was so challenging. You know, I I grew up inside, uh, you know, initially customer service and then pricing, which was for intermodal and truckload and then truckload. Those were my roots for my first 12 years of my career. And then I was asked to step into an executive role and lead and really start a part of our company that for 12 years I had thought was our enemy. And so I was bringing into what I loved so dearly, which was our assets. I thought I'm bringing a competitor to our assets. So I had that same mental block. What the challenge inside that was that if people could actually understand the value proposition that we could create for our customers and our asset, it would start to change the way we think about our business. And that I really grabbed a hold of. That started to make sense to me. And so when we started up ICS, we were very intentional to make sure that we didn't just sell brokerage. We didn't want to sell one segment of our business. We wanted to sell our entire enterprise or what we call our scroll. And so we started going to customers and saying, hi, I'm Shelly with JB Hunt. And we wanted to introduce them to everything that we could do inside our organization. And we started bringing new names to to J.B. Hunt, which included new names to the asset part of our business. It opened our funnel so wide that there was enough freight for everybody. We didn't have to compete anymore, but it was definitely challenging in the beginning, helping people, even myself, see that vision and to really focus forward to what we could do for our organization. Well, I mean, so Shelly, you were president of ICS for four years, and I love hearing the story behind it because every day of that four years, you were working through these these uh, decisions. 
But I saw on a website that there's three core values of ICS. Yes, there sure is. They're still there. They're still there, strong as ever. And they are accountability. That's right. Commitment and teamwork. Yes. And you just gave a great example of of how from a day to day activities you were able to open up this tremendous new market. You went from ninety two million dollars to more than eight hundred and fifty, which is incredible. But how did your values help drive that movement? Okay, so one thing you'll know is we definitely want to make sure that we're proud of what we've accomplished. And so our revenue is actually a billion last year and will be 1.4 billion this year. Okay, so my numbers um, are a little old. Yeah. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank Congratulations. you. Thank Very you. impressive. And, uh, and my point being, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of people. There's mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, that have been able to do that. And really, I've been with it since the inception. So I've had the opportunity to see 11 years of what, you know, what we needed to do. Tell me exactly what your question was again. So my question was, like, you you were giving a lot of good examples of, like, actual things that were implemented. And in my mind, those are a little easier to learn or at least wrap your head around. Because if you're in a classroom, it's a concept you can study. I got you. But but in some ways, values are a little more difficult because, (gasps) one, they can be subjective. Yes. But, two, it's harder to kind of, like, rally the troops around a value versus, you know, some sort of technical goal. Yes. So how did those three values kind of help achieve the technical goals? So when we very first started ICS, so we actually named the segment. Uh, So when we announced in April of 2007 that we had started a newly formed business segment called Integrated Capacity Solutions, we spent a lot of time thinking through that strategically. Mm -hmm. We picked the word integrated Mm -hmm. because we wanted to bring in the entire organization. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring as much capacity as possible. We were going to be solutions driven. From that process, we talked about what were the values that we thought would be important to do those three words that we just talked about. And that is where we formed accountability, commitment, and teamwork. And that was at a senior leadership level. Mm -hmm. What we did from that is we then started to make sure everybody understood what were those values. So if we think about accountability, we're accountable to each other, we're accountable to our goals, Mm -hmm. we're accountable to shareholders and to carriers we do business with. It started to connect. We did the same thing with commitment and teamwork because we wanted everyone to understand there's not one individual that will make our goals accomplished. We then tied our monthly recognition program to what we call ACT, accountability, commitment, and teamwork. Mm -hmm. So we always had the ACT award winners who was acting Mm -hmm. on our value system. And so for the last 11 years, once a month, we've recognized by what we call branch. It's a group of people that work towards a common goal, Mm -hmm. who the ACT Award winner would be for the month. And the ACT Award winner is picked by their peers. So it's it's very easy for a leader to say, well, I really like Shelly and she's doing such a good job, but it really depends on what your peers say. Mm -hmm. Do your peers nominate you that you are the best at being accountable, committed, and the best team player? And that's how we started ingraining that into the way people thought. And then we took it from ACT to our slogan, which is BTGT, be the go-to. So if you if you go around and say, I see us now, you hear people talk about that. It was starting with first, you know, what was going to be the name of our organization and what was the purpose of it, our value system, and then what's our slogan. And that's incredible how it seems like you purposely spend time not on your technical work. You purposely spend time more on this vision type 
activities and promoting people in order to meet those values? Well, I would love to say we were just really smart and really good, but we didn't know what we were doing because it was a new business for our entire organization. And we had a lot of smart people, but we had to figure it out. So in a way, I felt like I was back in school again. I spent a lot of time in research trying to figure out who was in the space. I only knew one name. Who's in the space? What is the value proposition of a broker, if you will? Um, and what are they doing really well? You know, one of the things I've said is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can mimic things that we admire in people. That same mentoring concept comes into play here. If a company is doing something really well that you can replicate and even add to it to make it better, there's nothing wrong with doing that. We don't have to invent everything. So we had to spend a lot of time in research and in study those first at least first 12 months, we did a lot. My first three months on the job, I just did research and talked to people. Oh, that must have been fun, though. It was a lot of fun. I was trying to consume as fast as possible so I could then develop strategy with the team. The whole team was working on that. What's the strategy? So we would go into uh, kind of group think about a concept or how did we want to do it at J.B. Hunt because we weren't a non-asset company. We are, will never be a non-asset company under our current structure, and we're proud of that. We're a large asset-based organization, but how do we become a large 3PL asset-based organization? And that was kind of the vision for our early 3PL is? A third-party logistics. Thank you for the for the non-business yes. makers yes. in the room. Yes, thank you. So third-party <laughs> logistics, asset-based organization. Okay. You know, and that's really wearing both sides of that, and very difficult to do, I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, most organizations, that actually do logistics work that are big in asset, they do what what we would call an overflow model. Mm -hmm. So they optimize all their shipments for assets, and then they use those shipments, uh, they they really give that to other carriers because their assets can't handle it. So where it may or may not be good for another provider. We don't do that. We optimize for what we believe the best answer is up front. And so if we optimize a shipment and we know that would be best suited on a carrier, it will immediately go to that carrier, even if the asset part of our business needed that shipment for the day. So it's a very different model than what traditionally people have done. So looking in the rearview mirror, it sounds pretty straightforward, but I assume that there were days where it was anything but straightforward, where it felt you're banging your head up against a wall, just not making any progress. Could you perhaps provide an example where you gave one of your five top leadership values to kind of get through a tough situation? Sure. My, one of my favorite sayings that Craig Harper, our COO, says mm-hmm. is, I quit many times, just never told anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, early on in, in those, those years, um, I'm thankful for my husband. I'm not sure how many times I went home and said, my goodness, oh my goodness, why, why did I do this to myself? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but, but I think... If I really come to what was so important on the leadership side, you know, authenticity is so, you know, that's my number one leadership Mm -hmm. principle. Because if people can really hear what is happening, whatever it is, people just want to be in the know. They want to know what you know Mm -hmm. as a leader. As much information as you can give them. They don't want it packaged up and real pretty. They just want what they would say the truth is. Mm -hmm. And being an authentic leader really is, listen, making myself available for any question, Mm -hmm. for any discussion, and being transparent about what that looks like. And so one of the things we did um, 
really, I, I had a second opportunity to do a turnaround that was inside our truckload team again. Several years later, uh, I was asked to, to move into our truckload segment, and one of the things that, that I knew we needed to do was an employee engagement survey. And now those are, those are fun and not fun. Could you maybe give like a 30,000 foot explanation? So an employee engagement survey is when you ask a series of questions because you're trying to determine uh, the feelings and opinions of an, an, an individual employee and then you roll that up by a key area or key principle that you're trying to drive mm-hmm. and you basically get a scoring as a leader. Okay. That's the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say what is an employee engagement survey, that would be my report card as a leader. Okay. How engaged are our employees? How do they feel about our vision? Mm-hmm. Um, just key questions that we're trying to drive. So the more engaged they are, the happier the employees, typically the better the results. One of the things that we did early on uh, was we did that employee engagement survey and then we shared everything back to the people through what we call fireside chats. So we scheduled individual meetings for 45 minutes, 10 to 12 in a room at a time with myself and our key leaders, really starting with vision of where we're headed, results of the employee engagement survey, good and bad, Mm -hmm. and what we were going to do about that. We did that on a regular cadence when we were trying to move through a turnaround story. And that meant that I would be standing up there and I would say, listen, I have a bad score in this category. This is a direct reflection of me. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know this. These are the things we're committed to moving the needle. So they knew exactly what we were working on. That transparency as a leader saying, I don't get all A's either. I want all A's. But I don't get all A's in leadership every time. Sometimes when you're going through change, when you're going through a tough time in the business, how your people feel is is reality. Mm-hmm. And so we have to work hard in leadership to be able to help our people see the vision, but also have accountability to ourselves. Uh, we have responsibility to really help our people see the things that we're trying to do to make it better for them. I think that's phenomenal to recognize that we all, regardless of what level you're at, what experience you have, we all can take a look in that mirror, get that honest feedback, and all try and move forward together. I have, a, I have one other really great example, and this was um, this was the most not fun part that I did. Um, we also did 360s. Uh, so that was an evaluation from our people about their leader. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my leaders uncomfortable because I knew there would be some things that wouldn't necessarily be good because we were going through change and transition. And I wanted everybody to be comfortable that it was okay wherever you were at that you're not in trouble. What our objective is, is to move forward. It's not wherever we start, it's how we finish. And so what I did was I gave a 360 evaluation form to all of my direct reports. I asked them to fill it out anonymously and they gave that to our HR team. I read every comment and I actually allowed HR to display my results to my entire team. I wanted them to understand that I don't get all A's either mm-hmm. in that scenario. And I just thought that was really good because they started embracing that it's okay. It's okay, but I have to have an awareness that this is how my people feel about my leadership. And so I have to, if I care enough to ask, I have to care enough to make progress mm-hmm. in it. 
And I always told people, listen, my, my strengths are really strong. I'm typically an A. And my weaknesses are real tough. I'm usually an F naturally. Um, and so my philosophy, which not everyone likes, is that I want to get it to a C plus. That's my objective. Because the level of discretionary effort it takes for me to go from an F to a C plus is so significant, it would take my A's down into B's and C's. And so that was always my objective. And so it got people comfortable that it's okay that you'll always have a weakness. Let's just move it to slightly above average. And if we can get that, it will pull our entire average up. Just like when you're in school, you're trying to bring your GPA up. You don't want to work so hard on the subject that's so bad that your A's really start to distort your total GPA. You know, Shelley, one of the capabilities of a leader is visioning. And I remember when you wanted to communicate a vision, your vision to your sales force. I remember um, one of the things that you did that you wanted to help them with the vision of had to do with this idea of integration and that your sales team shouldn't just be going into a shipper and trying to sell transportation, but really trying to understand the logistics and supply chain and cost structure of your of your shippers to do what's best for them because your philosophy is that if you do what's best for them, everyone's going to be better off. And, and I, I, I've heard this over and over at J.B. Hunt over the years, and I hear it from you in particular. Um, and so you went to a large shipper on the East Coast, mm -hmm. but you first studied their cost structure. You studied their network. And you went in there, and they were telling you about some problem. And you got up and drew a picture of the U.S., and you started talking about, okay, let's together come to a solution. Um, and, and it worked really well, and it got a lot of business for J.B. Hunt. But then you wanted to, you wanted to create that, take that and turn it into a vision and communicate it to the whole sales force. So you... Would you talk about what you did? Sure. Yeah. I think what was great about that is I had one of our very best salespeople there with me on the call. And what I found from that, uh, and he's still here today and still one of our very best top talent in sales. And what I found was he didn't necessarily see it from a customer's view, not because he wasn't capable. He didn't have the same experience I had. I had the opportunity to go in front of so many shippers that I had experienced the supply chain and the challenges that many, many, many shippers had seen. And so I, he had started the meeting and I heard the customer talking in a, and I realized he wasn't getting at the root of the issue. And so over time, I realized I needed to insert myself in the sales call. As I started inserting myself, I saw him picking up exactly what I was talking about because he was learning through the process. And by the end of the call, I realized I had pretty much drawn it and explained it and it connected and it connected with him. And I thought, wait a minute, all we need to do is take them through the process. Our people are very capable. They're very smart. They don't have the experience. And if we can get them that experience, that would change our sales organization. And so I remember calling Spencer Frazier, who leads part of our sales organization. And I said, Spence, I want to talk with the University of Arkansas. I know that we have some kind of strategic meeting that we've got going on, but here's what we want to do. 
We know what we're really good at, but we don't understand it from the seat of our customers. So we keep trying to apply solutions when we don't really know the full problem. So let's go have a brainstorming session with the University of Arkansas and try to describe what we're looking for in a training program. And it would be around supply chain foundationals. And it was, in a way, the supply chain had changed so much. We Most of us had graduated from college, University of Arkansas alums at that, <laughs> uh, but it had changed so much. So we hadn't been in school so long. We had a lot to learn. And so we worked on that program and developed, uh, you know, that University of Arkansas supply chain school inside J.B. Hunt. And so that became so important in our organization, so much so that I remember when we did the very first, we had four different levels. When we did the first level, I remember casting this to our 20 plus year veterans. Listen, I know you don't want to go back to school. Neither do I. I was so thrilled when I graduated. <laughs> However, I want to learn more and I want to get better for our customers. And I want you to know I know that you are dreading going through the whole process, as am I, but I will be so much better. I want you to know I'm taking the courses as well. And it was funny, through the process, I keep I kept sharing with them, how many of you did well on, you know, lesson two? <laughs> and you know, y'all let us retake it over and over until we got a good grade, which I appreciated. <laughs> um, but it was so good for our sales organization, helping them see that, it didn't matter to me if they made A's. It mattered that they were progressing and learning and understanding. And when we were done, we changed our supply chain meeting, our trends in supply chain, which really took first day more academic. So that was University of Arkansas led to a group of shippers and J.B. Hunt. Day two was our application. That became so relevant. They had gone through our foundational training. Then they went through trends in supply chain. And then we put it into practical application, and that changed the way people view. And that's why if you walk around and talk to sales, they will now talk about things they learned back in their foundational class as if they were a freshman at the University of Arkansas. That is really amazing. And, you know, when I look at your, again, at your five leadership values, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just read them in order that you, you put them in. Authenticity, integrity work ethic slash hustle, lead by example, passion slash believe. But again, I I think what you just described is another lead by example kind of a thing because you, you were doing it. You weren't just telling people to do it. You were actually doing it yourself. That seems to be a common um, value here at J.B. Hunt. I think so. I knew that they were dreading it. I knew how they felt. They're 20-year veterans, and they're very successful. Yeah. It wasn't that I was saying, we're not doing a good job, but we could really transform the way our customers think. And that got them excited. They still weren't super excited to go back to school, but I knew if I could model that, and I didn't, I didn't go through it saying, this is the most amazing thing ever. Right. I went through it saying, you know, I really enjoyed this one part. Or I would come in one day and be like, whoo, that one was tough. And they'd all just laugh because it was tough for them too. You know, they had similar experiences. I think, again, I saw that very early in my career. I think, you know, our work ethic and lead by example really go hand in hand for us. 
I, I always say I feel like work ethic is the most underestimated leadership value. I don't hear people talk enough about it. And when you think about it, people are watching you, whether you're an entry-level position in a mid-management or if you're an executive at the top. They're watching you. I remember being first in my job, staring in the offices, no kidding, and I was like, what do those people do all day? We're the ones doing all the work. And I would watch them. After I asked that, I started watching them to see what do they do? What are they modeling? Do I believe them? Because I always say people stay with an organization, number one, because they look at the value system that is modeled by their leaders. Do they believe in the vision and the values that they see inside a company? If that's a check mark, they're normally going to stay inside an organization. Number two, they look at, am I happy with my boss? Like you think about a successful career. Oftentimes, people are unhappy with a company. They might just have, a, a, you know, not enough chemistry with their manager. It's like setting two wonderful people up on a date and they aren't wonderful together. Doesn't mean that they're not wonderful people. And so oftentimes people get stuck because they see the leader and they think that one manager is a reflection of the company, and that's not true. It's just they're not good together. And number three, and almost always uh, I think this is the case, this is why I think Craig always said I quit many times and never told anyone, is oftentimes inside an organization uh, you have moments throughout your career where things just don't make sense. And um, sometimes it's you as an individual. And you have to be able to recognize that. You have to be able to know that you're going through a moment in time. And you have to figure out what are you going to do inside that moment that can change the way you view it. Because you love the company, you love your boss, you're just going through a moment in time. And so I think leading by example and sharing those stories with people that work for me, you have no idea how many times people have just given me a sigh of relief like, you thought that? You know, they, they think that we have this perfect journey all the way to an executive position. And, you know, I've started hourly. I went part-time for two years having children, trying to be a working mother. I quit seriously twice inside the organization, mostly for family conflict. And then they just wouldn't let me quit. And that shows you what a great organization I had that worked through that with me. Um, so I've been, you know, we go through seasons in life and that modeling that I saw consistently from our top level. Uh, really, that's how you build loyalty in an organization. That's how you build people that, people work for people. And I never wanted to disappoint my leadership. Well, I remember when you first started working here, you came in early, you stayed late, you worked extra hard. Would you mind telling a little bit about that story? You know, because when you first took the job. Which one? J.B. Hunt, your first oh, job yeah. here. Okay. You weren't thinking, oh, this is my career. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so when I worked really hard, it was my first management job. Because in my hourly role, I couldn't work hard. I, I mean, I worked hard at what I did. And so every hour I was here, I was working really hard. And I only did that because my dad told me to. So my very first job was an hourly role. And that was going to be my short-term summer gig until I got my real job. But my dad told me to take it serious because people could be my customers. That's what I was thinking of. And, and so they could be my customers. That's when I went, aha, I should be very professional in my first job. Not that I wasn't going to be, but I just didn't make the connection. I was thinking, I'm coming here for a month or two and then I'll get my real job. But I came, I did start from day one as if this were the 
last job I would ever have in my professional career. Little did I know I would be here 24 years later. You never could have told me I'd be here for 24 years. I thought that was old and stale and they just couldn't get another job. But if you look inside our organization, people aren't here for years and years because we can't ever go get another job. You know, you realize as you've been inside an organization that there's so much more to a fulfilling and rewarding career. You know, I care that my leadership cares about me personally, about my family, ask about my children, work with me in seasons in life. There's so much more. Money is always there somewhere. The grass is always greener, so people think. So I thought, but I fortunately had mentors I listened to young in my career. First, my father, that transition to my husband and to other leaders here inside the organization that were able to talk me through, which through thoughts that just didn't have enough experience behind them. Oftentimes our thoughts are real, their feelings and their emotions, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's truth over the long term. It's just in the moment that you're in. One other thing, today was Thanksgiving here. You had your Thanksgiving meal, and you were down there, and you greeted everyone, all of the people coming in to the, the meal. What made you decide to do that? You know, when I look at our people, they work so hard. They do so much, and just they're, they care so deeply about our organization, and I, and I always think, you know, it's my one way that I can really say thank you. And I and I think in a in a company, I think it's really easy to get inside an organization. I remember when I very first started, I thought, boy, if I could just do X or Y, I would be so happy. That'd be such a wonderful job. And uh, I, I think the, the real people that make things happen in our organization are our frontline employees. Our drivers in particular, I wish I could see them all right now. Um, but it's really true. And sometimes they just need to know that we care. And, and, and holidays are tough for people. You know, for some people, Thanksgiving's not so fun. You know, they don't have a thankful year. And when they know that we appreciate them, and that we're thankful for them, it just changes the moment. It might not change their overall thought, but it does change the moment that they know in that one thing that we deeply care about them. It's our other actions that we create throughout the year that allows them to see, is that really true or not? This is phenomenal because this is the first time I met Shelly, so I, I'm yes. enjoying this tremendously. and. Podcasts are usually just vi uh, audio recorded, but I wish this could be video recorded oh. because I can tell after only 43 minutes that you are being 100% authentic, mm -hmm. that you have an extreme passion for your work. And I, I think that yeah. I am fortunate enough to also be passionate about my work because awesome. it's, I can't believe I get paid for what I do. That's awesome. But it, it just sounds like you found such a good home here, and it's just such a wonderful company. C could you maybe just reflect a little bit on, if you had to, and I'm a huge fan of spreadsheets and percentages, so mm -hmm. if you had to break into percentages, how much of the time would you say you work on maintaining, developing, and nurturing your values and your company's values as a part of your, your job? 
Because it seems pretty significant. Well, it's, you know, when you are in an executive position, you know, our role is really to make sure we build a strategy Mm -hmm. that can be executed for a very long time. Um, I I tell people a lot that I would love to spend one-on-one time with people every day. I would love that. It's something I get energized about. I could do it in a big setting, a small setting. It doesn't matter. Um, but I have to count on my leaders to do that. So I try to spend more time. I'm very intentional about where I spend my time. My calendar really drives me, and that's really important for me because I can get stuck doing the one-to-one, and then I'm not creating really what my role is for the long term. I probably spend uh, about 30% of my time really focused on people, nurturing, vision, communicating our vision, that's probably about how much time I spend. The rest of it's primarily in strategy, um, whether that is around our business strategy or with customers. Those are going to be the two areas that I focus a lot on because we're a high growth company. So, you know, when I first started, I thought I had missed my opportunity at J.B. Hunt. We were a billion dollars, so it was big giant and I thought, well, shoot, I should have come to work here in college because it's all the growth is gone. You know, I, what was I thinking? And, um, you know, here we are, I don't know, around eight and a half billion this year. You know, we doubled the size of our company from 09 to 14 and we want to triple by 2020. And hopefully, God willing, we'll do that next year. I had no idea. I, I didn't realize, you know, then what opportunity there was inside the organization. So my job, because we're growth, our CEO says uh, growth is oxygen for our company. I love that. It's so true. Mm-hmm. Because if we're doing a great job growing our top and bottom line, everything opens up. Our opportunities become endless at an individual level. level. So those people that we were serving Thanksgiving that thought they are only here for their short-term summer gig, or maybe winter gig for them, you know, if, if our company keeps growing, they see opportunity and they start to realize what else they can go do. And so I have to stay very centered and very focused on doing that as my main objective. And I think that you're talking about the company growing. I, it's fair to also say that you envision each individual in oh, that definitely. company growing too. And when you have both those working together, then it's, it's limitless opportunity. Well, when, when the company is growing, that means we need more leaders. Mm-hmm. That means people that don't even see themselves in leadership. We tap and say, hey, have you ever thought about leading people? They say, who, me? Right? That's exciting Mm -hmm. to be able to tell someone, I really think you'd be great in leadership. When the company is growing, that's what he means by growth is oxygen. Mm -hmm. Because the organization starts to say, wow, we can do it. Because people at an individual level say, I had no idea you thought I could do that. Then we start saying, hey, we're going to go do this as an organization. They start to grab hold of that vision because as an individual, they've seen themselves progress, maybe in ways they didn't know was possible. You know, you've not only grown a lot from a revenue perspective, but your profit's grown a lot too. And, you know, economics shows that if you're not in a government-protected, highly regulated kind of environment where you're artificially protected from competition, then if your profits, because the profit's the best measure of how well you're serving customers and making people better off, 
And your profit has grown tremendously over the past few years. It's just remarkable. Every time I see a quarterly announcement, I'm like, wow, all of your all of your segments are doing so well. What what do you think's been the I mean, ultimately we've got to make profit. How have you all really done such a great job of driving profit? Well, when I talk about growth, I mean growth on our top and bottom line. So, you know, earlier when I said quality of revenue was so key and understanding your cost relative to your revenue. And then when we started bringing in integrated capacity solutions, we started to compete for the first time on business that we couldn't understand why we didn't win as an asset only company. So we start to see that in each one of our segments, we are driving towards how do we compete against our peers? And then how are we competing uh, from a cost perspective? Are we making ourselves better? So we have, you know, inside our dedicated contract services segment, they did a great job 15 years ago developing what we call CVD, customer value delivery. And that really is when we make a commitment to a customer, we're going to know as part of our process with them of review that we're going to be focused on how do we create value for our customers, at least in that review. So now you know you're accountable to creating value. And so you start thinking about that value you create. Well, think about that, what you do organizationally. You start thinking about how can I make myself more valuable to customers. That is so neat. I. I don't think that's clicked for me. I, I was aware of that, but now I see the connection. That that really is. You remember amazing. when I said earlier, our slogan was BTGT. That's just an ICS, but we've inherited that in our customer experience team. Now it's kind of grown into that. Be the go-to. Well, the only way you can be the go-to is create the best value for your customer that they want to keep coming mm-hmm. back because you are the go-to. So every time I say, gosh, Matt, I want to be the go-to for you, and I give you an answer, and you say, well, you're $300 too high. I have to go hone in on my cost. What's driving my cost? What's a better solution? For us now, we have several different answers for our customers. We don't just have one product to sell. We can now say, well, what is the best answer for a customer so that I can become the go-to? And price isn't everything. I have to have the capacity when they want it and be a great service provider at the same time. Shelly, thank you for taking time from your busy day to meet with us. This was outstanding. Great. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.